You're listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information about Vineyard Milwaukee, go to vineyardmilwaukee.com. Now here's our podcast. Can you hear me if, if this say is here? Good. All right. We're good. Well, all right. Happy New Year of the Lord, everyone. All right. This morning, I will be speaking about Jesus's humanity and why I believe that understanding Jesus as a human is not just really important, but it's also really exciting. Um, there's this thing that the, the word is Christology, and the, it's basically just how do, you, how do you study Jesus? And it can kind of be uh, split into what's considered high Christology and what's considered low Christology. And high Christology is basically viewing the man Jesus as God, and low Christology is viewing the man Jesus as human. And, I mean, it, it, it's understandable that it, there would be this um, split because it's a paradox. Jesus being both God and human is really confusing, hard to understand that. Um, I, I think, obviously, both are really important. And we see, like, high Christology shows up a lot in art and architecture, and I love it there. I want, like, icons with, like, glitzy gold and angels on the ceilings. I want... Russian choral music in cathedrals, like big, uh, glitzy, awesome. That's where I love high Christology. But when it comes to how I think about um, the person uh, of God here on earth, I love focusing on who Jesus was as a person. Um, So I will be sharing a few of my favorite elements of stories uh, throughout that we have from some texts in the Gospels. Um, I won't be focusing too text-heavy for you. I've got a list of sources if you want them. Um, But I really do want to share the stories that have inspired me um, because that's how the good news was originally passed down through the generations, was in the form of stories. And that's what really, I think, gets people excited. You know, good news. It's in a story. So the story of God as Jesus starts this way. Remember that one time God, like the God, came to earth as a human person? That's pretty wild. The author of John describes it using language like, the word became flesh and dwelt among people. Um, And when he's using the word, the word, it's this Greek word logos, which means something more than a written word. And it doesn't mean the Bible at all. Um... To the philosophers of the time, the logos, the word, uh, this was the creative fire through which all things came to be, by which all things were ordered, and to which all things have returned. So that guy comes to earth, or as Eugene Peterson puts it, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It's already really exciting, but he comes into the world as the baby Jesus fully human, completely vulnerable. He's not, a, he's not a superhero or a demigod. It's not, it's not a mix of God and man. He's fully God and fully man, but as a baby, um, no superpowers. He gets by with a lot of help from his friends. And this, the origin story starts with a really impressive cast of characters. Um, his mother, Mary, has an in-person encounter with an angel of God. His adoptive earth dad, Joseph, has three separate dream visitations from angels. 
uh, his cousin John, a.k.a. the baptizer, a.k.a. the greatest of all time, while still in utero, was so filled with the Holy Spirit when the mothers met, they were both uh, in utero, um, Jesus and John, and that he's like jumping for joy. Um, so that's all pretty exciting. This is like all to set the stage for God becoming human. Um, and then the story gets into the high drama of the nativity scene. Lots of foot travel, birth in a stable, and then going on the run from an evil king who wanted to kill the infant Jesus, and then living as refugees in another country. Before his birth, the Son of God needed lots of good adults in his life. He needed a physical mother to nourish his body from her body throughout her entire pregnancy and then to deliver him. He needed an earthly dad to keep the family safe when they were on the run. And I believe Dave pointed out um, a few sermons back that he needed these Babylonian astrologers to bankroll the getaway. Already, this is such a good story. Like, it is a great origin story of how God came to be. But he's still a baby and still, like, not even doing anything. He's just probably eating and sleeping. I really do wish we knew more about his early childhood. I mean, the importance of early childhood wasn't really recognized anywhere until, like, a couple decades ago. It's, like, very recent in culture. Um, and, you know, there may have been stories, uh, but probably he had a really typical childhood once they settled into Nazareth again. Um, but I bet he had all the same physical and biological needs of um, any baby. Um, I, hope, I really hope his parents have these stories of, of his toddlerhood days where, like, they sliced his bread wrong and he wouldn't eat it and... He didn't want to try even a bite of figs, and he hates it, you know. I assume. We don't have those stories, but I would love to know them. Um, we do have one story of Jesus as a young teenager. His parents are traveling to Jerusalem for the Jewish holiday, the festival of the Passover, and Jesus gets separated from the group. His mom and dad are traveling with a whole bunch of people, and nobody noticed that he wasn't there until they had been traveling back toward home for a whole day. So Mary and Joseph turn around and they look for him for three days before they find him. Um, and they do find him in the synagogue, impressing the religious leaders and teachers with, with his questions and presumably insights into the ancient Hebrew text. And his mom, when they find him, was like, what were you thinking? We've been looking for you for three days. And 12-year-old Jesus says to them, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Or didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? And I hear that, and I am like, that is so typical of young teenage brain development. <laughs> so many assumptions were made. Like, oh, his parents would naturally know where he was <laughs> because it was obvious to him and it was in his brain, but zero communication happened among the three of them. And I'm sure at one point he had this thought like, huh, I really haven't seen my parents in a while. Well, they'll know where I am. <laughs> and, like, and he didn't even know like how much time had passed. Like, 
Like, it reminds me of when I was in middle school and I'm sitting in someone's basement with some friends and we're eating chips and drinking Mountain Dew and listening to Garbage or the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack on repeat and none of us noticed that the clock on the wall had, had been stopped, was stopped, and it's like, it's been three o'clock for four hours, but you know, like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, we didn't notice. And so we all had to scramble to get home on time and it was fine. But, you know, you think about it, this is brain development, you know, this is really typical. And I think when we read Jesus with, like, not enough humanity, like, you think he's, like, always right, and that he, you know, every response that he had is somehow, like, holy and blessed. But, I mean, I think this is just Jesus being a kid. Um, And, you know, I'm also noticing when I hear a 12-year-old Jesus um, telling his parents, didn't you know I'd be looking for my father? Um, that reminds me of what is very typical development among adopted individuals who uh, grow up with ad- an adoptive dad in this case. And it's really normal at different developmental stages of life for kids who are adopted to start looking for their birth families. Now, Jesus' birth family gets a little complicated, and I have no idea how that works out. But he knew that his, his father was in the synagogue, <laughs> was hanging out there. So I think that's pretty normal. I, I'm here and still a pretty normal kid, doing kind of normal things. But also a special kid who um, grew in favor and was obedient to his parents and um, gained wisdom and stature and... Um, favor with God and the people. And that was the last thing we heard about him in his youth. Um, But I do believe Jesus would have needed his parents and his teachers to to teach him. He would need people to teach him the scriptures, the Torah and the prophets, which he quotes extensively later in his career. Um, And even though his parents didn't maybe understand at the time what Jesus was talking about when he was in the synagogue, um, they nevertheless knew who he would become. We can't forget the Magnificat, you know, Mary's song of praise that she sings when Jesus is um, barely conceived. You know, she, she sings this praise of God and who the Father is and that through the baby that is inside of her still, God would bring down the powerful from their thrones, lift up the lowly, fill the hungry with good things, send the rich away empty, and show mercy to his people. She knew that about him. And I think she needed to teach that to Jesus. Um, Our first conceptions of our identity come from our parents. Uh, And I don't think that's any different for Jesus, that he would have learned who he was through the blessing, the words of blessing that his parents would have spoken over him throughout his entire childhood because they knew. So he had two main caregivers who both modeled a posture of seeking and responding to God and both of them saying yes to what God asked them to do. And maybe they instilled from even a very young age what it meant to be the Son of God or how to listen to God 
to get even further guidance from his own father. So this brings us to near the beginning of his ministry, his first miracle. This is a story of emerging adulthood. Jesus and his mom are at a wedding, and at some point she comes and tells him that they've run out of wine, which is a bummer and embarrassing to the hosts. Um, so Mary tells him they have no wine, and he says, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. But here's the thing. His hour had indeed come. Because Mary doesn't even dignify his response. She tells the servants, do whatever he says. She doesn't even listen to him. Um, and he tells them to fill some jars with water, which they do. And it turns the water into the best wine ever and saves the day. Saves the party, saves the day, saves the host. So he did his first miracle. His hour had come. When I hear him say, well, that's not my problem. My hour's not yet come. I'm hearing, Mom, no, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> this is a young man who, need, afraid to take the plunge, needs his mama to kick him out of the nest. <laughs> and she does. <laughs> and so his ministry begins. Um, there was one other character who also wanted Jesus to hurry up and get going, even after he, once he finally gets started and he's doing some miracles, and John the Baptist sends uh, messengers to him and says, are you the one who is to come, the one we've been waiting for, or should we wait for somebody else? And I was just thinking about that actually this morning, and I was like, I think John is trolling Jesus. Because obviously John knew that he was the one to come. Of all people, John, who in utero was jumping for joy that this is the one, the savior of the world, has finally come. John, who literally prepared the way of the Lord and said, this is the guy whose sandal I'm not even fit to untie. And now he's sending messengers to say, are you really the one who is to come? Or should we be waiting for somebody else? Because I think... You know, John was active, and he was constantly doing stuff, and I think he was trying to get Jesus to do even more, too. Um, but Jesus sends back to him, and he says, tell him what you have seen. The, the blind are seeing. The, the sick are getting well. Good news is being preached to the poor. Um, so Jesus knew. He knew what he had come to do. Um, Jesus had a human body, which means he had a human brain. Same limbic system, same emotional reasoning that we have. He had to. Otherwise, he didn't have a human brain. He wasn't a human. Uh, so I believe his psychology was identical to ours in, in, in terms of brain and body connections. So he felt feelings. He, he experienced sadness. He grieved. He wept. He experienced anger and rage. He experienced fear. He got tired, he got hungry, he was dirty, he feared his own death, he feared pain, he had to take breaks from his ministry to recharge and spend time in prayer and in solitude and in rest, and he didn't know everything. Um, sometimes people surprised him, sometimes he was perplexed or even kind of confused about what was even happening within him and around him. Um, and just the, he lived his experiences in real time. He didn't do everything knowing what would happen. And I think that uh, 
he was able to experience how God in the Holy Spirit was speaking to him and guiding him, and I think he took a lot of risks. Um, Jesus was tempted. That is something that can really only happen to a human. Um, you can't tempt God. Maybe, maybe lesser gods. You know, there's lots of deities in other traditions, more mythical traditions, where they're um, quite, quite, um, you know, have these human vices, and they can be um, kind of petty, you know. But I don't think you can tempt the God of the universe. Um, and so I believe that when the Holy Spirit led him to the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days during this epic fast, um, I think he was tempted in actual areas of his own vulnerability, obviously being tempted by hunger when he's in a fast, but also like um, areas as a teacher and a leader, like what if he could have fame? What if he could start this ministry sooner? Um, what if he could abuse his status in some way and see what happens and, you know, how God and angels would respond? Um, those are things that do tempt regular people, and I think they did him as well. Not that he was just going through the motions of the experience of temptation. I think he actually maybe really wanted those things in moments. But he gets back from this experience in the wilderness, still filled with the Holy Spirit, and he, start, he summarizes what he knows to be his ministry, um, taking out the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he gets to work with his disciples, also humans, teaching them to bring good news to the poor, the grieving, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the oppressed, and the rejected. And they do. They heal the sick, they raise the dead, they cleanse diseases, they cast out demons. All is a human empowered by the Holy Spirit. Before his death, Jesus often had to help his followers understand that he would need to suffer and to die, which of course was hard for them to hear. Peter challenged the thought that Jesus would have to suffer and die, and Jesus responded with, get behind me, Satan. And I think this is an example of another temptation. I think he's talking to Satan when he says this. Like, what if, what if he could get out of the calling, the bad parts of his calling? What if there were another way to save the world from sin and sickness, death and Hades? There wasn't another way. Ultimately, he had to die um, as a human. And ultimately, he had to trust that Father God would raise him would um, be with him, that this was the culmination of his ministry. I think he had to even maybe have faith that that was the reality for him. Um, and maybe even in moments during his death, he may have experienced the perception of being distant from God, just like we may feel at times. 
so that he could know what it's like to be human when we feel distant from God. There's no asterisk next to that victory that says, well, Jesus was on spiritual steroids. He had it easy because he was God first and then human. I think um, he did this as a person, totally trusting God, ultimate faith. And I also like to think that maybe during his death, he was able to scorn the shame and pursue and endure the pain because he had this hope. He had this positive memory of his future or of our future where he could see the people of God totally redeemed, totally set free. Like he could look into the future with hope, not with like knowing, but like with hope. And there we'd be, once upon a time wrecked by insecurity or shame, and here we stand with joy and in worship. I think that image sustained him through it all. We are the reward of his suffering. But why does this matter to me so much and to you? Well, if Jesus did in fact heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the diseased, and cast out demons as a human, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he told his disciples that they would do even greater things than he did, well, that gives us an awful lot of hope for healing in our lifetime. And I do think that Jesus was able to hear such direct guidance from the Father and be empowered by the Holy Spirit because he was constantly cultivated relationship with his Father. He went away for hours and for days to be alone and pray. Um, that's something tangible we can strive toward. And actually, brain scans have shown that people who pray an awful lot, like nuns and monks, um, their brains actually change in, in ways that um, gives them more peace, calm, calms those areas of our brains that get too agitated. So um, we can actually start in even small ways with small prayers and small meditations. And um, I think that we will get closer and closer to what it would be like to be filled with the Holy Spirit the way he was. Also, why does this matter? Because in, in our weakness, God is strong. If Jesus had to rely on God for strength in his weakness, then we also can rely on God to be strong in our own weakness. And we do have an advocate who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. Um, and you know what he does with uh, his sympathy in our weaknesses? You know, it, he doesn't become judgmental of the fact that we struggle. He, he becomes even more kind, and he, he does it so that he can help us. Um, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, approach the throne of grace with boldness, because Jesus understands, and he knows how hard it was. Yeah, his response to enduring life in a body is to just respond with grace for all of us. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. No shame, no guilt, just love. Finally, I do believe Jesus as a human had to come to accept his own ministry and the burden that was taught to him by his mom, by the leaders in his life, 
He needs to choose to believe the prophecy and the blessing spoken over him that he is God. Before he was born, his mother knew who he would become and the significance of God coming to live among the people as a person. Remember when she prophesied about hope, justice, and equity. That's good news for the poor. So maybe you have a blessing or a calling on your life that you have to choose to believe. Has someone trustworthy in your life ever noticed a gift that you have or mentioned something about yourself that feels like it maybe is true? Or have you felt the presence of God stirring something in your life and you wonder, could this be true for me? You have good news for the poor, then the Spirit of the Lord is upon you. Are you eager to participate in feeding the hungry or housing the houseless? Are you an advocate for people oppressed by systems of racism or classism? Do you support the work of agencies who fight human trafficking or unjust incarceration? The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. You bring love and hope to the children in our school systems or the families in our city. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. You welcome foster kids or refugees or immigrants into your home. You care for people who are sick or who have disabilities or who suffer from anxiety or depression or substance abuse or other mental illness. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. You have other good news for the poor that I don't know about? I would love to hear it. Or are you one of the poor in spirit who needs some hope? I got good news for you, and that is the Spirit of the Lord is in this room. And there are people here who want to pray for you. And if your hands get tingly when we talk about praying, I want you to join Rebecca or Talita or me or somebody in praying for somebody today. Um, because maybe the Spirit of the Lord is on you for healing as well. Will you join me in communion this morning? So while they were eating this meal together as friends and family, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, saying, Take it and eat this. This is my body. Eat this together. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Enter worship. Um, I just want to. Uh, I just want to add that Jesus as a human makes him even more the God I want to follow, even more the God we worship. 
he did rise again. And therefore, anything is possible now. So if you have hope for an impossible thing, let us pray for that. And let us and just pray a blessing on that. Um, yeah, get prayer for anything you need. The Lord is here to meet with you. Thanks for listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information, go to vineyardmilwaukee.com.